Thanks, Lynn. Good morning, friends. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. And no, I'm not doing very well on my New Year's resolutions yet, Lynn. Thanks for, thanks for asking, though. <laughs> it's not a great start, is it? I had a fun Christmas, though. I hope you did. I had a rich Christmas as well. We had our first live nativity here, and it was, I mean, the kids were just awesome. It was so sweet. Um, I'm Taylor. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn Galleria. We're a church plant, and we're one of a few and a couple more being planted soon, God willing. So just glad to be here with you um, this morning in this part of town, uh, worshiping the Lord together with the saints. Just such a sweet thing to hear God's people. As I'm, I love sitting in front, in part because I'm not distracted as much, but also so I can just focus on the Lord. But also I just love hearing your voices as you praise God. So beautiful, so sweet. What a great way to ring in the new year. Uh, to start the new year, I should say. So, um, and I want to say just briefly before um, jumping in in earnest to this, to Genesis, to the start of the Bible, that, that, as Lynn said, on the bulletin, just two announcements. They're both worth mentioning briefly, and that is tonight at five here, five p.m. Please come and pray with us um, for all that God's doing for yourself, for this body, for what, what He has us doing here in the city. Um, so please come pray. There's probably nothing more important than that. And secondly. We just started equipping classes. I'm not going to mention this every week, but we just started today. We started equipping classes for the first time in our, we were a young church, a sapling, a sapling of a tree plant, of a, of a church plant. And uh, after three years, we've just started our first equipping classes, and they're in the hall, just or across the hall, not in the hall, that would be weird, um, across the hall in the music room, right there, at 9 a.m., um, and we're just, we're just walking through the entire Bible this year. So if that appeals to you, and today was, it was a packed house, uh, it was really fun, and I look forward to just being with y'all and doing that together. So just an open invitation. Um, there's there's childcare, um, so please come and, and join us for that, for that teaching hour, and then for this worship hour after that. Okay, well, as I said, I've, well, I didn't say this bit, but ever s- since I've begun dreaming about planting a church, I've always wanted to preach through the whole Bible, that's probably not going to happen, at least in this series, definitely not. Um, but it, I did kind of, I am kind of getting my rocks off by teaching at the nine o'clock hour through the whole Bible this year. That's, I'm excited about that. But sort of in, in step with that, in a, in a way, we're starting a series, I've always wanted to just start at the start. It's just simple, right? There's, a, there's an appeal to beginning at the beginning. Being able to see the cohesiveness of the march of salvation history and how it's all packed into these first few chapters in the Bible. So we're calling this series, it's going to stretch up to Easter week. We're calling it Foundation, okay? And we're, we're going to be spending this whole next three plus months in Genesis 1 through 4. And, and so I'm really excited about it um, for a bunch of reasons. This uh, summer I taught, a, I taught a class on the theology of the book of Revelation, and a lot of Christians, a lot of people, but a lot of God's people, the saints, uh, are afraid of the book of Revelation. And that's a shame. We talked about that in the class. It's a shame because it's a wonderful book. It's the way God chose to cap his written revelation to man, uh, to us. It's a, it's a Christ-exalting, Christ-saturated, hope-filled book. But a lot of Christians think that when they think of Revelation, they think incomprehensible, frightening. And so we stay away from it. And um, even though it's ironic because John, the author of the book, the beloved disciple, starts the book by saying, blessed are they. Blessed are they who read this book aloud. 
and obey its commands. Blessed, not, it's the opposite of what most of us think of when we think of Revelation. We think not blessed, frayed, hiding under a chair. <clears throat> no, um, blessed. And so I feel like the opening chapters of the Bible have kind of gotten a similar rap in sort of our space, our time and place in our culture here in America, in that um, partly because of the enlightenment, partly because of just where we are in our secular society, we've driven a wedge between science and religion, and a lot of the stuff that Moses deals with in the early chapters of Genesis are under attack right now. Um, so when we think of these, we tend to avoid the early chapters, even as Christians. We tend to avoid talking about them, um, but they're such an amazing blessing. And the whole Bible, I'll make this point a bit at the end of the sermon, the whole Bible, I want to contend, is packed. This is why we're going to spend this spring in this, these chapters. The whole Bible is packed into these first three chapters. It's the acorn out of which the oak tree of God's word arises. Okay, so, um, but when we think of the early chapters of Genesis and creation, we think of Darwinism and the age of the earth and the supposed animosities, I've said, between science and religion, and so we're afraid. And that's a shame, and that's something the enemy has done to the church, and I want to reclaim that. So we're starting today a series called Foundation, um, and it's going, to stretch, it's, going to, it's going to stretch through up till Easter week, and it's going to take us to the one who makes sense of all this and who fulfills it, Jesus Christ, um, to Easter week. And it's going to be a perfect entree, I think. Uh, I couldn't be more excited. Yoram Hazoni, <clears throat> writing in First Things in the January issue of First Things as a periodical, he's quoting from the opinions of Justices Kennedy uh, Soder and um, O'Connor in, in a 1992 case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. He says this, he, the opinion says, the United States Supreme Court has, since 1992, permitted itself to make decisions on the basis of what it calls a, quote, right to define one's own concept of existence, meaning of the universe. Again, the quote, uh, the direct quote from the case is, we have a right to define our own concept, one's own concept of existence, meaning, and of the universe. A right to define all that, who we are, what is, it's ours to define. We're the captains of our destiny. We call the shots. What we say, what we speak is real. It, it, it emerges from Immanuel Kant and before Kant. It's very enlightenment type thinking. Um, but look where this has landed us as a culture. Has defining, this is just a question I want to throw out to you, I'm not going to answer it. Has defining ourselves and our values and our world brought the freedom that we thought it would? I'm going to leave that unanswered for now, but I'll just simply point you to Genesis 3, uh, and it's, it's answered there in a lot of detail or addressed there in a lot of detail, and we'll get there in the weeks and months to come. In a world adrift, in a world that's just loosed from the moorings that provide stability and blessing in life and society, we're going to return to the foundation of foundations. The Bible, the scriptures, God's revealed word that takes us to Jesus is our foundation. We're going to the, the foundation of that, Genesis 1 through 3. So this morning, what I want to do, it's sort of a prefatory sermon. This morning, I just want to look at the first few verses, and then I'm going to camp out point two in Psalm 19 in the middle of the Bible just for a few minutes, and then we're going to finish with John 1, 1 through 5, and see how Christ is always illumining the pages of scripture and always helping us to see reading straight to him. Um, but before, so I'm gonna do that today just to sort of set up the series, but after this sermon, like next week, it's just pure Genesis one, essentially. We're gonna do a deep dive. It's not gonna be all over the scriptures. The Genesis study will lead us throughout the scriptures, but we're gonna do a deep dive in Genesis one, two, three, 
and four. And that starts next week, okay? So point one, I just wanna say the light of creation. Let's look at these first three verses in the Bible together briefly. They've already been read for us. Um, but we, a lot of us even know, like, kind of like we might know John three sixteen. we might have an idea of the first verse of the Bible. You might even say it with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's sort of part of our cultural inheritance, which is a blessed inheritance. Um, but I just wanna talk about this light of creation in these first few verses. Um, first of all, I just wanna talk a bit about high, high word, the epistemology of the, the study of knowing, how we know what we know. It's extremely sophisticated here um, in these first few seemingly uh, simple verses, in these first few seemingly simple words, because ultimate, I just want to say ultimate things, things that there is nothing higher than, are by, by nature, they have to be self-referential and self-defining. An ultimate thing can't look to something above it for its meaning, because there's nothing above it. It has to refer to itself alone, epistemologically an ultimate thing has to be self-referential. Let me give you an example of the meter, the standard meter for a long time. It was in Britain at first. It was literally like a raw, an iron or metal piece. Uh, and it was a meter. They said, okay, this is a meter. This is the standard meter. And then it ended up in France, and I'm not sure where it is now. It might still be in France. Um, but the standard meter, you couldn't, you couldn't say, okay, now why is this a meter? And you couldn't appeal to anything else. It's because, it's because we've decided this is what a meter is. And everything, everything that we want to see, is this a meter, is it a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, has to be measured against that ultimate, that ultimate standard, okay? It's self-referential. Jean-Paul, to give you just sort of a quote about that by a guy that was by no means a Christian. He wasn't even a theist. He was an atheist. Jean-Paul Sartre, he was a French existentialist and, uh, that lived in the 20th century. And he said, for, he was honest enough to say, for any point at all, for any point at all, to have any meaning, there has to be an infinite reference point that's fixed. If everything's moving around, if there's nothing around which everything else, kind of like the North Star, you kind of know where you are because the North Star is fixed and everything goes around it. There has to be a North Star for any of those other things to have any orientation at all. Um, and that's exactly what we find in the scriptures and here in the first words of the Bible. Is God, to cast forward a bit, in, in Exodus 3 when he appears to Moses, Exodus is the second book of the Bible after Genesis, and he appears to his man Moses in a bush, a flame, but not being consumed. And Moses says, who should I say? God says, go and, and, and uh, set my people free, I'll be with you. And he says, who should I, when I go and I tell Pharaoh to let your people go, who should I say you are? And what does God say? You tell them that I am. You tell them that I am who I am. He doesn't appeal to anything higher. He appeals to himself. He's self-referential. Why? Because he is the one God, the creator, without whom nothing would be. The one, the only uncreated being. Ah, say, self-existent. That's part of his constitution and nature. And so he refers, he can't refer. If that is truly who God is, he can't refer to anything else. He has to say, you tell them that I am. And because I am, everything is. And that's what we see here in the beginning of the Bible. It's very sophisticated epistemologically. Look at this, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. God is simply assumed. There's no five-fold proof. And that seems like a bit of a cop-out until we start to investigate how if God truly is the highest being, he would simply have to be assumed. And from 
him, all meaning comes. All meaning comes. And this is exactly what we see here. Um, so also, just again, sort of on the sophisticated thing, again, I want to be pushing against how, oh, this is sort of a myth and it's not very sophisticated and it's what credulous ancients believed. Actually, when we start to dive into the words, I hope you'll see that's not true at all. It's the foundation for all understanding and knowledge and for us to know God and know the important things in life. Um, but it also presents space and time as being mutually uh, dependent, which is something that we've only discovered recently. Einstein basically had a proof for that, um, that most scientists uh, say, I think maybe perhaps all scientists say, it's, it's just, it is true that, that time, that, excuse me, that space necessitates time. Time, there's a time in which time didn't exist, but matter, having matter and having space and having things means that there is time. And that's exactly what we see here. In the beginning, there's time. So the, what's, the, what's the assumption there? There was a time in which there wasn't time. There was a beginning. And now the Big Bang is essentially, there are other rival theories, but it's essentially agreed that there was a start. And that's what we see here in this 3,500-year-old document. As typical, the Bible's way ahead of its time. That when time came about in the beginning, there was a point in which there was no time, but then there was a point in which there was time. And in that moment, God created. There was space, there was matter. You see how Moses conjoins in a very simple verse that we all know, that we kind of rattle off and take for granted, just like we rattle off, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only. Profound words both. But these are profound. When time started, matter had begun, and it came from God, an assumed being who's self-referential because he is the highest uncreated thing. This is the foundation stone for anything we know, whether or not we admit it. We can argue against God, but we're doing so assuming meaning, which only comes from an ultimate being who's intelligent, and also with the very breath and life that we've been given, we're using those things that God has given to argue against him. It's like standing in his lap and being high enough by being on his knee to slap him in the face. Okay, even atheists um, rest on so many of these truths that Genesis is gonna be, gonna, gonna show us and unpack for us. Okay, so it's sophisticated. Um, space or matter necessitates time. Again, it also states that there's a beginning. I just wanna, for a minute or two, just say, Again, we think that that's normal. That, that's not a mind blower, okay? Oh, yeah, it assumes that there's a beginning. So what? Again, it was something that we've only recently, I won't say proven, but it's a very strong theorem that, that there was a point at which all things began. Infinite density, almost, and in a matter of nanoseconds, things exploded and began, okay? And we've seen this in science, and this is what the Bible seems to be saying, all right? Um, but to even think, to even say, to posit as an ancient document, for right off, there was a beginning is actually revolutionary. Because many, many, many ancient cultures did not believe in the linearity of history. They didn't believe there was a beginning. They just, the Greeks, for instance, just believed that, the, that time was just a series of repetitions. Time was circular, like a serpent eating its tail. The idea that you have probably, unless you've very recently come to the West from the East or from the Middle East, is that there was a start and there is a finish to time and there's a trajectory and there's such a thing as progress and there are things we can rely on and we can build on. That is a biblical, Judeo-Christian inheritance. And it starts right here. It's extremely sophisticated. And it gives us a lot of hope and it gives us the ability to, among other things, build and go somewhere and have progress. That is an inheritance from the scriptures. 
Um, there's lots more packed into these simple, seemingly simple verses. Before jumping to point two, I just want to rattle off a few of them. First of all, just looking at these verses, we see that God is independent of his creation. Again, don't have the time to go into it much, but very distinct from almost all the ancient Near Eastern religions at the time. God is not part of his creation. There aren't rival gods competing to create. Um, he, he, he is God. He is self-existent. And then there is matter because he speaks it into existence and cares very much for it, but he is separate and distinct from that. This is a biblical idea that we get from the start. God alone is God. There aren't many gods. This was also possibly unique, but extremely rare at the very least among ancient Eastern cultures. There's one God. There's no, there's no rival. There's no one who um, competes with this uncreated God. Um, God is one, and yet there is a plurality, a society about him that isn't yet delineated in these early verses, but we see it delineated in the person of Jesus Christ, don't we? Um, and so we see it in the beginning here. In the beginning, God, okay, created. Just those first few words. Bereshit, um, um, let me give it to you in the Hebrew just briefly. Bereshit, in the beginning, bara. Uh, created, that's the verb for created. Only God does bara creation. Bereshit, in the beginning, bara created. Uh, Elohim, God. Elohim, the im ending in the Hebrew is always masculine plural. What? God, masculine plural? Yes. It, the first three words we get, bereshit, bara, Elohim. Elohim, there's a, God is one. He's very clearly one. But there's a plurality in the Hebrew grammar, Elohim, it's, the, it's undispu- indisputably the plural masculine ending for a noun, Elohim. And yet the Hebrews were clear, there's one God. But there's a plurality about him. What's that about? What is it joined to? Bara, created. Bara is a third person singular. Don't worry, this is the only Hebrew grammar you're getting today. Bara is a third person singular. It's attached to a singular Subject should be, but in this case, it's a singular verb. There's a singularity. One being created, but he's, there's a, there's a plurality about him, Elohim. What is this mystery? Okay, well, a lot of times in Scripture, as with any good document, keep reading, and you'll see the meaning that's packed in unfolded. That's what we have in, that's a hermeneutical or an interpretive principle in the Bible. If you're confused, keep reading. It's the near context that will help you the most, and it's the most reliable for helping you understand that problem in that text. Let's keep reading. In the beginning, God, so there's a, there's, a, there's a plurality, but there's also a unity. So there's one God, but there's a plurality there. What's that about? Created the heavens and the earth. Verse two, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Okay? And the spirit of God, verse two, was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, there's a, God is a spirit. He's one, he's a creator, but he's a spirit. And then how does he create? Verse three, the last verse that, we look, that we're gonna look at in this passage today, okay? In other ancient Near Eastern, there's man and, and creation can be a, a, a byproduct of a sexual unity between the gods, procreation, a waste product, a byproduct created simply to serve the gods and to be slaves and chattel. Very common in ancient Near Eastern cosmologies. This is not how this God creates. How does this God create? Give it to me. He speaks, verse three, and God said, 
please understand how revolutionary this is. And God said, let there be light. Finish the verse for me. And there was light. Fiat, command, and out of nothing, something comes. Something beautiful and something good. Light. There's a word. How does God create? God himself is word, and by his word, he creates. God is a spirit. God is word. He's articulate. He's a thinking, intelligent, one but somehow plural being. Okay? Does Christ reveal more of that to us? Of course. But look down in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's a counsel within, the, within God himself. And he starts, to, he starts to sort of, it's like he grabs his pipe and puts on his smoking jacket and kind of pushes back from the table of creation and starts to talk to the, this counsel within himself and says, let us, let us make man and woman in our image. There's a plurality there, which we see fully articulated in the person of Jesus Christ. God is Trinity. He's three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but he's one, okay? But he's one. Um, there's a lot more here, but I'm going to, that basically does it. Let's move on to, um, from point one, the light of creation, briefly to point two, the light of the word. So the light of creation, we looked at Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Let's briefly look at the light of the word. And you don't have, this text wasn't read by Lynn um, on purpose, but I'm just gonna mention it. It's in the Psalms. You don't have to turn there. It's not on the screen but I just want to mention it instead of reading the whole thing for the sake of time. Psalm 19 is one of my favorite psalms, and I was gratified in reading C.S. Lewis's words about it. He called it the greatest poem in the Psalter. The Psalter is the 150 psalms that are the songbook of God's people, okay? They used it to sing like we do, okay? And we use it too. It's, it's woven throughout most of our songs. So C.S. Lewis called Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Just a few things about it. First of all, it start, simply, it start, it's, two, it's basically two to three parts. There's a pivot in the middle. It starts off with the sun. If you're familiar with Psalm 19, you know it starts off with the psalmist rhapsodizing. That's the only word I can think of. Rhapsodizing about the beauty and the strength and the life-giving nature of what? The sun. And he compares it, he uses a metaphor. He said it's like a, or a simile, it's like a runner running from one end of the heaven, heavens to the other in the way that it courses throughout the sky, full of vigor. Nothing is hidden from its heat. It gives light. And then there's a pivot. And at that pivot, the psalmist goes to something else. And we'll hit that in just a second. But the sun's light is essential for life. I've talked about this before in lessons and sermons. But I've just finished a book called Hero of the Empire by Candace Millard, great book, um, on the young Winston Churchill in the Boer War at the turn of last century, two centuries ago, 1900s, 1899, 1900. Um, he was taken prisoner in South Africa because the English were fighting against the, uh, the Afrikaners, the Boers. And um, he was hidden by an Englishman that was in South Africa. As he, he escaped from a prison, he was taken prisoner, he escaped, he was hidden in a cave by a miner for like a number of days and he kind of almost went crazy because there was no light and he was put on a, I mean, Winston Churchill, I mean, just, just voluble. He just was constantly garrulous, talking, 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 very social person, probably a seven on the Enneagram, people think, seven or an eight. Um, but he was hidden in a, in a cave deep in the bowels of the earth, in the veins of the earth, 300 feet down, absolute blackness for four or five days, put on a mattress and when the guy came back, 
a day or two later with a, like a, a cold chicken and some other things. And they, he gave him some cigars. Of course, Churchill was glad to have his cigars. Um, but he had to stay on that mattress. Why? You will die if you do not, if you get off this mattress, you will be irretrievably lost and you will die. There's no light. Without the sun, he was rendered completely incapacitated. Without light, we're finished. And that's one of the things that this author is saying. We're, it's life. It also illuminates everything we need to see. And nothing is hidden from its heat and from its rays. Um, in fact, C.S. Lewis says in his reflection on the Psalms, he says that finally of its heat, not, of course, the mild heats of our climate, but the cloudless, blinding, tyrannous rays hammering the hills, searching every cranny. Um, this is the heat and the light spoken of by the psalmist in the ancient Near East. And verse six is a turning point. The key phrase on which the whole poem depends, Lewis says, there is nothing hidden from its heat. And this is the final line before the switch. And the switch is this. It goes from the sun to God's word. And it says, just like the sun, so is the word, but even more so. Nothing is hidden from its searching rays. Nothing at all. And the word of God, the scripture, the law of God does things that creation can't do. It says this, the first line in the switch in verse seven of Psalm 19 says this. It goes from the sun hammering us with its light, providing all things necessary to the word. And it says, the word of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Excuse me. It says, before that, it says, the law of the Lord is, here it is, perfect, reviving the soul. That word is simply, I said no more Hebrew, one more, is shuv in the Hebrew. I said this before. It's the simple verb for return. What does the word of God do? It returns us to the place that we have strayed from. We, the implication there is we have gone astray like the prodigal son and we've left our home. We've left our father. We've rejected him. We've rejected his word as life and we've gone and said, I wanna be king. I wanna do things my way. Each of us have done this. This is the human condition in, in the fall. And what the word of God does is it shows us the way back and not only that, it takes us back. It brings us back to God who is our home. It literally returns us. And how does it do that? By showing us something creation never could. By showing us the heart of God, the deep, deep love of God through the person of Jesus Christ, his own son. How could we ever through the son and all of, all of creation, all of general revelation, how could we ever have known the lengths to which God would go to win us back to himself, to set the problem right. The word tells us that. The word returns us. It returns us. The theme of this psalm is as clear as the sunlight is. It's as clear as the sunlight. Um, and that is this, that the creator, the one who made all things, who made the beautiful creation in Genesis 1 and 2 that we see all around us, that creator is also our savior. Through his, what? Word. He created through his word and he began the process of the recreation of all things through his word. Who is, fill it in for me, who is what? Who is, who, what is his word? Jesus. That blessed, that blessed word without which we would be in darkness. Jesus. It means God saves. Okay? God made all things by his word and the gospel is that he is 
begun the process of remaking all things, reconstituting all that which is broken, you, me, anyone who will come to him through Christ alone. And from our being remade and returned home, all of creation begins to be remade. And one day Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna finish what he started. And then the party's really gonna start. So that's Psalm 19, that's the light of the word. And finally, the light of the world. Again, Lynn did read this. And you can see the similarities when she read Genesis 1, then she reads John 1. John is purposefully saying what I just said, which is that the creator is the savior. He who spoke all things into existence in the beginning, who is, who is self-existent and alone and yet loves his creation, has come all the way down to rescue us because God will never give up on what he started, never. Jesus is the great finisher. And that's what John shows us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We saw that in Genesis 1. He was in the beginning with God. All things, you hear that societal sort of language? He was with God. God isn't alone. God is happy within himself. He was in the beginning with God, his Father. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. A few more verses, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What's the first thing God creates? Genesis 1, 3, we just read it. Genesis 1, 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. This is the first, without light, there's nothing. We can begin to see, it pierces the darkness. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Paul's going back to creation. What, what has he done? He has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. Couple things that this is telling us. One, the, it's absurd, as we do, as I do, to think of Christianity as this isolated, once a week, maybe one hour from that one day a week thing. Yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm also these other things. <laughs> no, if this is true, the gospel is that God has set about to remake and reclaim Everything, starting with your brokenness on the inside, the deep places that you don't let anybody see, not least of all yourself, all the way to the sun, the moon, the stars, everything, everything. No more brokenness, no more pain, no more cancer, no more evil, no more sin. He came to take care of that problem, okay? Salvation is about the recreation of all things. It doesn't get any bigger. Are you bored, Christian? Are you bored with Christianity? Let me tell you, it's because you don't understand the gospel. I don't either fully. We're understanding together. It is massive in its implications. It gives us mission and purpose and hope that will never end, okay? The second thing that I love about this verse is that it says that we find out about God's plan of salvation and exactly what he's like in one way. In the face of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know exactly what God is like? Do you want to know exactly how much he loves you? Do you want to know exactly the lengths he went to to save you? Do you want to know how free you are if you are covered in his blood, represented by his death on the cross in your place, and his life of obedience from the Father for you? Do you want to know all those things about God, his power, his humility? Look at Jesus Christ. 
That is John's claim. That is Paul's claim. That is the scripture's claim. Jesus tells us exactly what God is like. Don't buy into the lie that is prevalent that the Old Testament God was mean and angry and Jesus is Mr. Nice Guy that came to save us. That is rubbish and it is anti-biblical. Jesus shows us who God is. What's the first command in the Old Testament? You shall love the Lord your God with everything. He wants all of us for all of him. He wants to give himself to us and he has in Jesus Christ. Wonderful, wonderful So Jesus, why, why all that? Okay, I just preached the gospel. Wonderful. I, I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad you heard it. I hope that the Holy Spirit takes it and puts it down deeper into your heart, into your head, and into mine. But what am I doing? I'm doing what, trying to do what Psalm 19, at the beginning of this slow, beautiful, hopefully march through the early chapters of the Bible, where we can reclaim some of what we've lost in kind of pushing those chapters to the culture. What a, what a travesty. The riches that are there, let's dig into them together. But I'm trying to do what the psalmist did, Psalm 19. When we are reading the creation account together, don't, think for a, don't read it for a second without letting it point you straight to Christ. Go to John 1. Go to the face of Jesus and say, how does his face, how does what he's done, how does the fact that he came to die in my place and live in my place and bring me to God the Father? I was far from home, wandering, and he came to bring me home. He ran out to grab me at ultimate cost to himself. Don't ever, don't read Genesis 1-1 without seeing it in the light of the face of Jesus Christ. He, he just like the sun, he opens up the earliest pages of God's word. He is God's word. Let, it, let the Bible take you to relationship with God through Jesus. That's what it's for. It's not, a, it's not a data dump. It's not so you can check off a list and say, I read, I read. That's good. That's really good. That's the only way you're going to know anything about God. Read your Bible, but let it take you to him. He's the one who saves. He is the gospel. What did Zachariah say? Not Zachariah, Simeon. When he held Jesus, the baby, eight days old in his hand, you, God, have let me see my own eyes, your salvation. Jesus, his name means God saves. Yeshua in the Hebrew. That's one more Hebrew word for you. God has shown us who he is and how he has saved us through Jesus. Come to him. Let even these earliest chapters take you to him. Okay, five quick points. I might just be three. They're quick. They're application, okay? Point one, in most books and certainly in ancient ones, beginnings are crucial. I said this in the nine o'clock class an hour ago. More than most books, I'm still crying because of the gospel. Sorry, I'm not crying because I'm talking about ancient books, although that could happen too. Um, I love books. Um, in ancient books, more than most modern books, position was very important. Beginnings, chief most, and endings, which is why I wanted to teach Revelation, but now here we are in Genesis. This, these early chapters are the foundation stone for everything that follows. Do you know that every time Jesus is asked about marriage, where does he go? Every single time. He had a lot of places he could have gone. He could have gone to Song of Solomon. There's a whole book about it. He goes to Genesis 1 and 2, the first marriage, the foundation stone. Everything grows out of this acorn. The whole tree 
Of course, Satan wants us to dismiss it and think that it has no place in the modern, secular, scientific age. Rubbish and hogwash, I say to you, and robbery. Let's claim it back. The beginning is extremely important. Um, The beginning, secondly, will cast us to the middle and forward to the end. Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the line that holds together, the blood red line, the scarlet line that holds together the whole march of salvation history. It all points to him. He says this over and over to his disciples. Um, The point of the print, of the Bible print, the point of the print is a person, Jesus. He takes us to the triune God, okay? There's no other way to get there, don't try. Just come to him, come come eat. Come eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, as we're gonna do in a minute. Um, Thirdly, don't therefore try to take uh, Jesus and leave the Bible. I had a whole point with 10 subpoints, and I took it all out, devoted to this. Jesus is, he is the meaning of the scriptures. He is constantly saying, my life is determined by the scriptures. And whenever he said scriptures, he meant the Old Testament. I fulfill the scriptures, Matthew 5, 17. I give meaning to them. I am the word. It is the word. It takes you to God. I am God. What did he say to the Pharisees in John chapter five? We just studied this in Ted's Bible study at his house, uh, to which any of you, if you're on, are invited if you wanna come. Um, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you search, they kind of worship the Bible, bibliolatry. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it is they that point to me and you are about to crucify me. Don't drive a wedge between the Bible and Jesus. That is absolutely the other direction that he points to. He claims to be the very fulfillment. Let the scriptures take you to Jesus. Also, fourthly, um, as the light of God shines, on, God's word shines from week to week, we will see two things. And John Calvin says this at the page one of his, comment, of his institutes of the Christian religion. We will, we will see more of God delineated perfectly as we're cast forward to Jesus, and we will see more of ourselves. Our darkness, as we get into Genesis 3 especially, the way that God made all things perfect, but the way that we fell and rebelled, all that stuff continues to come up in our lives. Nothing new under the sun. This rebellion, but then this release as God clothes us in the person of his innocent son, Jesus Christ. It's all there. You're gonna learn more about God, but as we learn more about God, it's inevitable. We will learn more about ourselves. You can't learn more about who God is and what he's done and not know yourself better. And here's the thing on this fourth point, and then one more and I'm done. It's gonna be scary. Kind of like when you go to the doctor and he says, I have some bad news. I, you have cancer of the gut. I just, you have cancer of the gut. That's bad news. I have good news though. And the good news is that I can cut you open, shine a light in, and take it out. Sew you back up and send you on your way after a bit of convalescence, of course. You're gonna be fine. No, no, no thanks. Nuh-uh, let's just pretend like that didn't happen. I'm good. High five, bye doc. Grab a peppermint on the way out. You're gonna die. The good news is that, it's, that you gotta go into the bad news first. You have this problem deep down. It's killing you. The fact that I see that and can do something about it means you can be saved. 
We, the light of God's word, as we learn about him, shows us the deep down darkness. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. In our own nature, apart from God's grace, we are far from him, hating him, nailing him to the cross. But he used that cross to save us. Wow. <laughs> so as your view of God's holiness and otherness and goodness increases and gets clearer as we go through these, so will your view of your own depravity. That's a good thing, so long as it leads you to Jesus. Because the greater his, God's delineations, and holiness, and goodness, and power, and mercy, and compassion, and the greater your view of your own darkness apart from him, the greater the cross. The greater the cross that bridges that chasm, that takes us, sinners and haters of God, into relationship with him through Jesus, okay? So there's hope, but, but we, gotta, we gotta be real with the bad news as the light shines into who we are. And lastly, as I've already said, to rearticulate, one point to cast us ahead, the whole Bible is here. It's packed into these three chapters. As we begin to understand these three chapters with something of a microscope, we're also gonna have a telescope and we're gonna look at how they cast out over the rest of space-time history, but as we look at these things together, um, we're going to see light, just like in Psalm 19 with the sun, cast in its hammering heat and intensity over everything. These three chapters will cast a clear light over everything in life and death, over God and over us. And I hope, that, I think it's gonna be a really fun journey. So let me pray. Father, I love you. I thank you for revealing yourself fully to, to us through the person of Jesus Christ, your beloved, blessed, wonderful, self-giving son. I thank you for these early chapters of your word that it's perfect. I pray that you would help us to hold judgment at bay and simply to open up our minds and hearts and to weigh the evidence and to say, God, if you're real and if this is really your word, speak to me, meet with me. Pray that you do that now through this communion table. In Jesus' name, amen.